You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. I'd like to ask you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. He is risen. It's so good to see you. I'm so grateful you're here, especially if you're visiting with us. My name is Kevin, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Sojourn East. And uh, we know you could have gone anywhere this morning. There's lots of churches, and you chose to be with us. And we don't take that for granted. And so I want to say thanks for coming. We hope that this service is an encouragement to you. It might stir your heart and your love for the Lord during our time together. Now, we as a church, we've actually been studying Matthew's gospel for over two years, and we planned it out so that we would get to this text on this day, and even the pandemic couldn't slow us down. We figured out a way to do it and a way to get here. We really wanted to preach Matthew's account of the resurrection on Easter, and I have to say, as I've been studying it the last several weeks, one of the things that surprised me about Matthew's account of the resurrection is how simple it is. It's simple and it's very short. I mean, if you go to the other Gospels, they're much longer and offer more details. Matthew gets straight to the point. There are two women, both named Mary. They go to the tomb, and they don't go to the tomb expecting Jesus to rise. We know from Luke's Gospel that they were bringing spices to do basically an ancient form of embalming of his body. When they arrive, though, there's an earthquake, an angel appears, rolls away the stone, and says, He's not here, ladies. Go get the disciples and meet him in Galilee. And so they go to get the disciples. They run into Jesus. And I love it. His first word to them is hi. (laughs) He just says, hey, which had to be so crazy for them. And they fall down and worship him at his feet. And then he says, go get my brothers. They get them and then off to Galilee. And that's, that's all Matthew says about the resurrection. I've been wondering why and kind of speculating. I think one of the reasons Matthew keeps it so short is because he wants to stick to the facts. He wants to be really clear about what happened on that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. But I think beyond that, the reason Matthew doesn't get grow into great detail explaining the meaning of the resurrection is because the meaning of the... 
the resurrection gives meaning to the rest of the scriptures, to the Old Testament and the New. And if you want to understand the meaning of the resurrection, I mean, that's, that's the whole Bible. It's what the entire Bible is pointing to. So we're going to just focus on, for the most part, one little verse here because our time's limited. We've got some baptisms that we're really excited about. But as I was studying it, there was one verse that really got kind of lodged in my mind as I read it again and again. And that's verse 7. After the Marys encounter the angel, Matthew tells us they departed quickly from the tomb. They saw it was empty with fear and with great joy. Fear and great joy was their response. I think we've We've all experienced this intermingling of fear and joy at some moment in our lives. Maybe it was the first day of school. Maybe it was your first day on a job, a first date. Maybe it was your wedding day. You know, a lot of joy, but also a little bit of fear. For me, the one that I most clearly remember was the birth of our first child, my daughter, Anna. I still remember it. We have five. And I mean, I experienced it in all with all five, but... By the time you get to five, the last couple, it's like, let's get this done. We'll be home by lunch, you know, kind of thing. But the first one, we'd spent years trying to get pregnant, go through the nine months, which seems so long. She was born, and I remember holding her for the first time. And just this indescribable joy of this human life. She's beautiful and amazing. I mean, it was incredible. And at the exact same time, I also had this feeling of, what have we done? Like, what have we gotten ourselves into? Our lives are changed forever because she's been born. And that's where fear and joy, when they show up together, that's what, that's what it means. It's, it's when you encounter something that you know is going to change your life. And so why in particular do these two Marys experience fear and joy? Well, unlike the 12 disciples, they were actually present at the crucifixion. If you remember, the disciples bailed on Jesus, but these women were there, and Matthew goes to great lengths to make it clear that they were there, and they stayed until the bitter end. These women heard Jesus cry out, it is finished. They watched him die, then they come to the tomb just because they want to care for his body and because they love him and they want to mourn. And an angel says, <laughs> he's not here, he's risen. And Luke, we're given more detail. The angel asks the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? And if I were one of those two Marys, I would have responded, well, it's simple. Because we watched him die. Like We saw him die. We saw the soldiers Run him through with the spear. We watched the water and the blood flow. And if we know anything about this world, we know that dead people don't come back to life. Dead people stay dead. And the angel just says, well, take a look in the tomb for yourself. And it stirred fear and joy. Joy at the prospect that Jesus is alive, but fear, what's the fear about? I think at the root of the fear is what they are witnessing doesn't match. It doesn't match up with what they know to be true about life, about our world, or about reality itself. It doesn't make sense. Think with me for a minute. Let's say you had a grandmother that you dearly loved who died several years ago. And let's say that this evening as you're eating Easter dinner, your doorbell rings and you go, and grandma 
is on the front porch. You haven't seen her for years. And she's strong and she's healthy. She looks maybe a little younger than the last time you saw her. I mean, what would your response be? I mean, first you'd probably say, am I crazy? Am I hallucinating? But then she gives you a hug. You're like, no, this is not a hallucination. I could still be crazy, I guess. And so you, you call your spouse in or a friend or family member, and they come and they, they see her, and she gives them a hug, and you start talking. And then you, you call extended family members and say, you won't believe this. Grandma is back. She's here. And they come over. I mean, what would you feel in that moment? You feel an awful lot of joy, right? Like, Grandma's back. We've missed her. I can't believe we get more time with her. But you'd also be terrified. Because her being there kind of throws a stick in the spokes of everything that you, you think you know about life and reality. It defies categories. And it upends our assumptions. And that's why we make such a big deal about the resurrection. Because the resurrection changes Everything. The claim of the resurrection is not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but embedded in his resurrection is the promise and the hope of a future resurrection for all who believe and who trust in him. It wasn't just about what happened 2,000 years ago. His resurrection actually, it tells us how the world as we currently know it is going to end. And it's going to end with the great resurrection. And this is hard, and this is challenging. It's challenging for us because we live in a world that can be very cruel. And life itself can be filled with a lot of pain and a lot of loss. And the older you get, the more the cruelty of this world can hit home. The more you bury people that you love, the more you, you deal with physical limitations or just simple aches and pains that come with age. Or maybe it's more serious, cancer, dementia. And it's hard. It's hard in this life not to become cynical. You know, there's that line from the princess bride. Life is pain, princess. And anyone who says different is just trying to sell you something. Now, I think at one level, that's kind of true. Life is filled with a lot of pain. It's just not the whole truth. It's part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. And the reason why is because Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible, it doesn't deny how hard life is. Go read it. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. I mean, at times it's hard to read just how honest and transparent and broken the people of the Bible are. But in the Bible, the point of the Bible, the arc of the Bible is the promise that God is not indifferent to evil, to suffering, to pain, to loss, to death. I mean, the arc of the Bible, you go from basically page two onward, and what we see is that God is absolutely committed to confronting evil in this world and to ridding this world of sin, to healing this world of its brokenness, and ultimately to destroying death itself. That's the promise. And so he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus confronts sin, evil, and death by taking it upon himself. That's the meaning of the cross. But then he rose from the grave. He didn't just die. He rose from the grave. 
And the meaning of his resurrection is that all evil, sin, sickness, and death, all of it will one day be swallowed up in victory. See, what I'm saying to you is the resurrection, it wasn't just a one-time affair. It was, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruit. In our day, we would call him the prototype. What happened to him happens to all of us who have put our trust in him. And the guarantee, the way we can know this is true is because we can point to him in the empty tomb. The stone rolled away. I know it's, it's hard to believe. It sounds unbelievable. But we can look at history. And we can see, I mean, the, the scriptures teach this, that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people after the resurrection. It wasn't just a couple. He went around to hundreds. And those hundreds were telling people, you remember Jesus? Yeah, the crucified. Dude, he's back. And he's better than ever. Stronger. He doesn't have the scars or somehow he recovered. He's got some kind of interesting powers. All of this, they encountered the risen Christ. And every one of those witnesses would have the same experience those women had. Fear and joy. Joy, oh my goodness. Fear, what does this mean for me and my life and and how I understand the world? Now, this small group of people, most of them were poor. They had little to no education. They had no cultural influence, no political power. They were nobodies. I mean, they were on the margins of the margins. But because they encountered the resurrected Christ and they believed that in his resurrection was their resurrection and the resurrection of the earth. These people radically reordered their lives around him. They sold their possessions. They started caring for the poor, their own poor, but also just the poor in the city. They took in lepers. They cared for the undesirables, the people that no one else wanted to draw near. They made it their mission. Romans, the Roman elites back in that day, Sometimes they would have babies that they didn't want, particularly if it was a girl because of the culture back then. And so they would abandon the babies in garbage dumps and let them die of exposure. And these people who witnessed the resurrection, you know what they did? They went to the dumps and they rescued the babies and they raised them as their own. They adopted them into their family. That's why the early church had way more women than men. They endured the most barbaric forms of torture and execution imaginable, things they didn't have to go through. All they had to do was renounce Christ, and they would be set free. And they said, I can't renounce what I've seen. He rose. And so when they got tortured, there are reports of them singing hymns as the lions are tearing them apart in the Colosseum. And within 200 years, this small group, a few dozen, few hundred people, grew to over 30 million half the population of Rome. The movement grew so big that the emperor of Rome had to acknowledge that Rome had become a Christian state. And any serious student of history has to ask, how could this happen? And I think the answer is right before us. They saw the resurrected Jesus, or their parents saw the resurrected, or their grandparents. People that they knew saw him, or they saw him, and they radically reoriented ordered their life around this man. You see, the resurrection, the way you know that the resurrection is having an impact in your life, 
as it stirs in you fear and joy. Joy that could this be real? And then fear, if it is real, what does that mean for me and how I live my life? I think it requires us to reconsider everything that, that we know or we thought we knew. But I think the great gift is it makes us a people of hope in a world that is so lacking in hope. You know, one of the hidden gifts of this pandemic, I think, especially for a lot of us here, not all of us, but for a lot of us here, a lot of us here before the pandemic, our lives were pretty good. You know, have a good house, good car, you don't have a whole lot of problems, affluence, life's pretty easy. And then the pandemic comes and everything comes screeching to a halt. But I think the gift in it has been, we have, we've, we've been learning what it means to hope again. Hope, which was a virtue that we kept on the back burner for most of our lives, has come to the front. I mean, who here didn't spend months saying, when is the vaccine coming? When are some of these restrictions going to be lifted? You know, Pastor Jonathan, he's been asking for bulletins for like seven months. And so for him today, it's like the bulletins are back. Hope, hope. They're like a bud on the tree at the first of spring. Hope that what we've gone through in this last year, it doesn't have to be what we, how we spend the rest of our life. That the day is coming when we're not going to have to wear masks everywhere we go. The day is coming when we're actually going to be able to hug people and shake hands and eat in restaurants. We've been trained by this experience to hope. And what the Bible is saying, that's great, but the resurrection gives us much greater hope. It's not just the COVID restrictions, but everything we experience, which are very real. The losses in life are real. The pain is real. But the promise of the resurrection is they're not final, and they will be swallowed up in victory. And we are called as God's people to live out of that hope, not denying how hard life is, but instead trusting in the promises of God. I came across this quote I thought was so helpful from Tish Warren, she says, the Christian story proclaims that our ultimate hope doesn't lie in our lifetime. Our great hope's not happening here and now. It doesn't lie in making like life work for us on this side of the grave. No, we watch and we wait for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. God's promise to make all things new will not be fulfilled till God breaks into time, bearing eternity in his wake. And Christians believe that this cosmic reordering has already begun in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the sole evidence that love triumphs over death, that beauty outlives horror, that the meek will inherit the earth, and that those who mourn will be comforted. And the reason I can continue watching and waiting, even as the world is shrouded in darkness, is because the things I long for are not rooted in wishful thinking or religious ritual, but are as solid as a stone rolled away. And so I want to ask you are, you, are you living into this hope? Have you taken this hope off the shelf and put it to work in your life? I mean, when you do, it can transform your life. It gives you perseverance, endurance. It makes you... a Instead of becoming a more cynical person, you become a more hopeful person. You move towards beauty and goodness and kindness and reconciliation instead of isolation, fighting and arguing and 
hunkering down. Because the resurrection, it gives us so much hope for the future. I'll also tell you, though, it gives us hope for today. It's not just about the future, it's about today. And we need hope for today right now. You know, it was a year ago, I preached our Easter message in here to a camera and two other people. Uh, It was by far the worst Easter sermon I've ever preached, probably the worst sermon I've ever preached, and maybe the worst sermon ever preached. (laughs) Like, it was hard, Easter, celebrating resurrection in an empty auditorium. It was disorienting. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that the last year has been, been a top three worst year for almost all of us. And I think one of the things that's made it so hard is that we've been forced to slow down. We've lost our routine, our confidence, our busyness. We've been forced to slow down and, and face ourselves, warts and all. If you're married, you've probably seen a lot more of your spouse in the last year. And that can be good. There's good in that, but there's also challenges. You're seeing things in yourself. You're seeing things in your spouse that maybe you'd never seen before. Or maybe they're seeing things in you. I know so many marriages who are really struggling right now. So as we slow down, we've been forced to confront things that we, we haven't wanted to see. Selfishness, entitlement, you know, or righteousness. Maybe for you, it's worse than that. Maybe there, there are things that you've done that you never thought you would do over the last 12 months. You've made decisions. You've betrayed people you love. Or maybe there are things in your life that you, you thought you'd put to bed, sins that you thought were over and done with that reemerged. It just felt so discouraging. And if any of that resonates with you, and I'm pretty sure it does, I just want you to know this passage gives us so much hope. It gives us hope that we never get too far gone. It gives us hope that what is right now doesn't have to define us. The mistakes of the last year or the last 20 years, they do not have to define us. And we know this because in the text, it's so easy to mess, but it's so powerful. When the women... See the angel. The angel gives them instructions. Verse 7. The angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples. And then just a few, few verses later, the women run into Jesus, and he tells the Marys, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. You see the difference? The angel said, go tell the disciples. And Jesus said, no, go tell my brothers. Brothers, think of all of the things he could have called them. Cowards, deniers, betrayers. Those who abandoned me on my greatest, darkest night, my greatest hour of need. But he doesn't. It's like he gets out of the grave because he took their sin on the cross. He gets out of the grave and he says, hey, go get the brothers. I want to see them. I want to talk with them. One person commenting on this said, in this one word, brothers, is crammed the whole gospel of forgiveness. And if Jesus still chooses to call those disciples brothers after they had abandoned him and after they treated him the way they did, that means there's so much hope for you and me. 
Paul writes in Romans 4 that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He took our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. And justification doesn't just mean we're forgiven. Justification means that we, Christ gives us his righteousness and says, you know what? You don't live up to it in actuality, but I'm giving it to you anyway, and I'm inviting you to become a man like me, person like me. And all who are in Christ have that righteousness, and all who are in Christ have that peace. And that's our hope for today. So as we move to the Lord's Supper, this is a time where we're actually reminded of of our future hope and our present hope. Our present hope, we're reminded of the night of his betrayal. Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then he took the cup, said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood that's being poured out for you. And they said, do this in remembrance of me. He gave us this meal so that we might remember what he has done for us. Dying on the cross. But, but this meal is also, it points to our future hope because we know on the day, that, that day of great resurrection, we know God's word has promised us that he will begin the new era with a great meal. And all who believe are going to be invited to this feast. And so when we take part in this, we're looking back, but we're also looking forward. We're remembering. I heard a pastor once say, the world, the world drinks to forget, but as Christians, we drink to remember. Remember what Christ has done and remember what he's promised. And so if you're here and you are in Christ, I encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, I want to plead with you. Today's the day. Receive the grace he's offered and step into a new way of understanding reality. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.